Well, as Timothy prayed, we are uh, in the book of Philippians, in the normal course of moving verse by verse through this great book. This is the second part of a two-part message entitled, An Earnest Plea for Unity. We're in Philippians chapter 2. You'll remember last week that we did eavesdrop on Jesus' prayer and how he... Ask the Father that his people would manifest the very oneness of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. That is no meager request. That is no light matter. Jesus prayed it in this way, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected, matured, in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. In other words, the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, in some part in this world, hangs on the unity of the church, the unity of Christ's people, one with the other. It is the Father's will that we would be unified, because Jesus always prayed according to the will of the Father. Jesus himself shed his precious blood that we might be unified, and it is the Spirit of God, all members of the Trinity, involved in this thing to make that unity a reality by indwelling us and baptizing us into the body of Christ. If you've looked at church history, if you've attended a number of churches in this world, I would guess that your own experience teaches you this very thing. That unity does not come easily in the church. That oftentimes we find ourselves at odds and disappointed with the outcome of so many of our church experiences. This is something for us that does not come naturally. We are much more adept at serving ourselves then we are really at serving the interests of Christ. And it is a continual challenge and a perpetual battle. It is a struggle that will never end until Christ returns. For churches to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I mentioned last week that when we think about living a worthy life, we have a tendency to turn in on ourselves and think about how we're doing in our quiet time, how we're doing in obeying the Lord, how we're doing in evangelizing, how we're doing in this, that, and the other thing. And really the emphasis of the epistles and of Christ himself is much more corporate. This concept of a worthy life is a worthy life among many other worthy lives, lives of those who have been converted radically from who they used to be. People who used to serve themselves, but now, having come to Christ, we have been converted, transformed. We have turned away from self and away from sin, and we seek instead to serve the one who saved us. That's our pursuit. That's our aim. That's our goal. And along with that came a predisposition toward the church of Christ. Jesus loves his church. Jesus died for his church. Jesus prioritizes the church. 
The church is central to everything that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing on the face of the globe. And because the church is precious to him, the church then is precious to us. The idea of a churchless, independent Christianity where Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior with no thought to the fact that he is saving out a people for himself is a short-sighted Christianity. Think of it. The evil one and all of his minions are dead set against the church, seeking to destroy the testimony of Christ in this world. Beyond that, we're fighting the tide of this world, that very divisive and disintegrating inertia that exists in this world of sin and self-interest. That current is forever eroding the church as it makes its way in and through. Beyond all of those external things, each one of us brings our own remaining flesh into this gathering, gathering. All of that that has not yet been sanctified in us, and it is a very real struggle, isn't it? To maintain, to be diligent, to, to, to hold on to the unity that Christ has called us to. And it requires careful attention. It requires constant diligence. It re requires individual accountability. This is not something that can simply be talked about from the front and some of us are sort of on, on, on page. No, it requires all of us understanding precisely what Jesus wants from us as a congregation of people, as his representatives on this earth. It is a corporate commitment to the unity of this body which Jesus purchased, as I said, with his own blood. This is very challenging, and the Philippian church is facing this very thing. And Paul is pleading earnestly for the Philippians to live <coughs> in the unity that has been purchased for them. We saw that beginning in verse 27, and we're making our way down today. We'll just get through verse 4 of chapter 2. That This is one section. This is one thought. He's calling them to unity. He's calling them, first of all, we saw, to stand together for the faith of the gospel. And then to strive forward together for that same gospel. For the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And beyond standing together and striving together, we are then called to suffer together for the faith of that very same Gospel, when we live Christ, when we preach Christ, when we testify to Jesus, the world will not be able to get to him, so they will go after us. And we stand as one in the face of that with the love of Christ and a steadfast commitment to never backing away from the gospel that saved us, but proclaiming it as the only saving gospel, Jesus is the only way and the only mediator between God and man. And in order for us to do this, in order for the Philippians to do this, they have to put away the divisiveness, the dissension that exists in their midst. There is complaint and there is infighting. And we've seen that and I won't develop that again this week. Last week we saw that Paul put before them 
four very powerful incentives to living in peace and harmony. We saw the incentives. That was our first point for Christian unity. And we noted that Paul didn't just bark at them, hey, get along, figure it out. He appeals instead to the mercies of Christ. And he says to them, look, if, if, if you've received Christ and all that comes with the Lord Jesus, and he lists four particular blessings here, mercies of Christ, four incentives, four motivations, and they're all preceded by the phrase, if there is any. Look at verse one with me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection or compassion. And we mentioned that Paul was using this rhetorical device to get the Philippians to, to reflect back on their experience in coming to Jesus. There's no uncertainty in Paul's thinking here when he says if. Remember, these words could be translated since or because Paul is saying to them, look, because I know these things are common to your experience in Christ, because you, like I, know what it is to, to experience the encouragement of Christ and the consolation of his love and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, because we know what it is to, to know the affection and the compassion of Christ. Remember that that compassion that is in the heart of someone who, who looks on with pity at someone who needs and, and moves forward in very practical ways to meet that need. We've known that in Christ. He says all of those things should move you to live in harmony with one another. All of those things should, should compel you forward to live in unity among one another. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, remember that word had the idea of counseling someone coming alongside of someone to exhort them and, and, and help them, to edify them, to build them up. And Christ has certainly come alongside of you, hasn't he? He certainly counseled you from his word. He certainly brought the truth to bear on your soul so that you understood the nature of, of, of your, your natural self, that you were a sinner, that you were in need of salvation. And he's taught you the gospel. And he's given you wisdom to understand life. He's encouraged you when you've been down. He's strengthened you when you were weak. He's given you wisdom from his word and therefore we've known that encouragement. He says, if there's any consolation of love, that is to speak of the, the comfort that comes in the knowledge of the love of Christ. He has loved us when we were at our worst. He's loved us when we were unlovely, when we were sinful and ungodly and helpless, when we were in our trespasses and sins. He's loved us with a, a sacrificial love, a love that we did not deserve, we did not earn, we did not merit. He's given himself for our sins and we have found cheer and gladness and joy in life because of it. He says, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, and I know you've experienced that if you're in Christ, because to be in Christ is to have the Spirit of Christ indwelling you. 
And that Spirit's ministry to us is, is monumental, isn't it? Day by day, hour by hour, strengthening us, illuminating the text of Scripture, convicting of sin, encouraging us, turning us again to Christ, empowering ministry in his name, lifting you up, strengthening you. We've known that fellowship. We, we've known that not only individually, but we've known it corporately, haven't we? The Spirit has ministered to me so many times through so many of you, and vice versa. This is the way God does his work. We all share in that same spiritual DNA. We're partakers of the divine nature through the indwelling Spirit. We share in the household of God. We're family, nothing short of family. Then he says if there's any affection or compassion... That tender compassion of Christ that met our need with practical concern and care. And we've, we've known that. And so Paul, in essence, is saying this. Since you have experienced all of these spiritual blessings, because you know what it is to be treated by Christ in this way, you're now to go and to turn towards one another at a horizontal way and, and walk in imitation of Christ, live towards one another as he has lived toward you. And really, he's just reminding them, isn't he, of the gospel. We live out of the gospel. All the benefits and all the blessings we've received in Christ. In other words, Christ is the fountain. He is the fountain. Christ and the gospel of Christ are the fountain for everything in your life. Remember what Paul said? For me to live is Christ. Christ is the, the very fountain out of which your life, my life, our corporate life, everything flows. And beloved, if I could say this to you, I really want to impress this on you. This is why it's so important that you don't view the Christian faith as something that, well, I've trusted Christ, I've repented of sins, I'm in I'm good to go. And then you're just going to put it in neutral until he returns or takes you home. This is why Peter says, look, you need to keep taking in the word of God, receiving it deeply implanted in your life so that you may grow with respect to salvation. We should know Christ better. We should be growing in our understanding of the gospel and all that was accomplished in it. We should continue to be growing toward the likeness of our Savior, because it is out of that likeness that we then begin to flourish and manifest the very nature of Christ. We glorify Christ in our gathering together, not just individually. These are the things that should motivate us to live as we do, as Paul is calling us here, in relationship with one another. And remember, that's what the church is. It's relationship with Christ and relationship with one another. It has nothing to do with a building. It has nothing to do with any of the machinery that happens around church per se. First and foremost, you have been called out of the world, out of that fellowship with those people, into this fellowship with these people, and the broader, of course, Christian world of, of, of all who know Christ. 
very, very important for us to understand this. And the Western church has missed it significantly. It's all about the programs. It's all about the 12-minute messages that are highly motivational and given to you in the, in the form of, you know, four ways to fix your marriage, three ways to raise your children, 22 ways to do this, and 27 ways to do that. The Bible doesn't come to us that way. Have you noticed that? It does not. The church is lost in its building programs, constantly pursuing money, constantly looking for another light or smoke or some other thing to bring into the congregation, Starbucks in the lobby, whatever. It's always about this, this thing we're doing here and getting as many people in, in the pews as possible that is so far from any concept biblically of what the church is. And that should be very plain even in the text that we've been making our way through. Paul is pleading with the Philippians to make his joy complete, to fill it to overflowing. Now, those are the incentives for living in unity. Now, what does a unified church look like? Well, Paul gives us four expressions or marks of a unified church. That's our second point, the expression of Christian unity. And we see that in verse 2. What does this unity look like? What does a unified church look like? Paul says, make my joy complete, first of all, by being of the same mind. And we're going to develop this one a little longer than the others because it really sets the tone. This really is the main verb in this section. And I think if you get the idea here, you begin to feel your way through the others. Paul here says, be of the same mind. What he is talking about is an attitude. He's talking about an individual and corporate perspective. And inner heart disposition, a posture, if you will, that each one of us is to have regarding one another. This is, if you want to put it simply, a, a frame of mind. This is what we are to think. This is how we are to conduct ourselves in the body of Christ. And I want to state it very clearly, and I'm going to repeat it a number of times, because repetition is the mother of learning. Unity begins with a mindset. It is a corporate focus. We are to think alike. I'll just read it to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul brings this concept up many times, actually, in his epistles over and over again. But he, he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, you know this church had a lot of trouble. And Paul says to them, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be made in the same mind. You be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. What was the Corinthians' problem? Division within the body. What was Paul's... <laughs> 
What was Paul's prescription? By the Lord Jesus Christ, he threw that in there. He name dropped, didn't he? Just, just to help them understand how weighty this really was. If you want to know what the answer to division is, here it is. You must begin here that you would be made complete and in the same mind that there would be agreement among you and no divisions. Now, I want to make this expressly clear so that we are not mistaken because we tend to think this way. He is not talking here merely merely, about being in agreement across the board doctrinally. He is not saying you must think in lockstep about every last matter of doctrine. Now, in the same breath, or the one that immediately followed anyway, I want to say this. We certainly have a common commitment to the word of God and to sound doctrine both. That is something that we in this church and we as God's people share. We are committed to the truth of the word of God as revealed in scripture. We have a high, high value upon the truth. We are striving, aren't we, to bring our understanding of the word of God to, to sound doctrine. We want to understand truth in a way that is right and is correct. But we understand in doing this that as a church, you're going to have young believers who are immature in the faith. You're going to have people coming out of churches where they've been poorly taught. They'll be ignorant of a lot of things. There's a broad variety of people coming into any given local congregation, and our aim is to be heading in the direction of a unified understanding of the truth. It is always our church's quest to understand and cling together to sound doctrine. But if what he is requiring here is that everybody stand with equal weight on their own convictions about this passage and that, and this doctrine and that, it seems like he will be doing more to stir up disunity than unity in this passage. There certainly are fundamental things on which we must walk lockstep, but beloved, don't misunderstand this to think that somehow everybody's got to squeeze into the same hole on every last detail of doctrine. Man, is Dave downplaying doctrine? No, you haven't heard me. I'm not downplaying doctrine. I'm not belittling it. I'm not even trying to teach you that somehow we've got to hold it all more loosely. My point is what Paul means here by having the same mind is not merely a statement about doctrine. In fact, Philippians is an epistle where Paul doesn't really deal with any doctrinal problems in the church. It's just not the, the kind of thing he's addressing like he was with the Corinthians or the Galatians. Their issues were relational. Listen, if you want to see right relationships in the body of Christ, you've got to begin with right thinking. And the emphasis of this passage, and I'm going to show it to you, is on thinking. 
It's not what to do somehow to preserve unity, but how we ought to think and have a certain perspective in common. Colin Brown, who's the editor of a, a lexicon, says this. Listen, there is a lavish use of language in this section to impress upon church members the need for being of one mind. Now think with me. We just saw in verses 27 to 30 that Paul drew us back to reflect on, to think about all that Christ has done for us and all the benefits that we have in Christ, hoping that as we thought about that, we'd be compelled then, motivated to work at unity and preserving it. He's going to call us in just a moment, and you can see this if you look down at at verse 3 in the end. He says, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Again, regarding, that is, a, that is a, a thinking thing. The word literally means to think or to esteem or to consider. But what I really want to direct your attention to is in chapter 2 and verse 2, Where Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and look at this word, intent on one purpose. Intent on one purpose. Look up at the beginning of the verse again. He says, make my joy complete by what? Being of the same mind. We're to be of the same mind. We're to be intent on one purpose. Chapter 5 and the first part of it, he begins by saying, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, what doesn't come through in the English text is that in every one of those references, be of the same mind, be intent on one purpose, have this attitude, those are all the same Greek word. He says it over and over and over again. It's the word phreneo. It means to think, to form an opinion, to agree together. In fact, it's one of Paul's favorite words. 23 out of the 26 times it's used in the New Testament, it is used by the Apostle Paul. Six times in his epistles, Paul calls his readers to be of the same mind. Now from another lexicon, I I get this. He says the idea is difficult to translate into English because it combines a very visceral as well as cognitive aspect of thinking. What's he saying? He's saying that it involves really the whole man. This word has wrapped up in it the idea of your your mind and your emotions and your will. The whole of you. Listen, the fact that we can all sign the same doctrinal statement and still crumble apart in a massive disunified fellowship, that's happened, has it not? Somewhere in your past, perhaps. Maybe you've known it only on an individual level. Well, you're blessed. But you certainly have known how two believers can, can find themselves on vastly different courses and there's disunity in that relationship, we can sign the same statement and still be disunified. That is no fix. 
he's talking here, and I quote again, about an inner perspective that shows itself in a corresponding outward behavior. We know this, that thinking affects doing. Look over with me. Let's, let's slip back to the book of Romans in chapter 8, and I'll just show this to you in one passage. Romans chapter 8. And we'll pick up in verse 5. Well, actually, the end of verse 4 there. Notice, Paul says, We as believers do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh, now note this word, set their minds, that's our word for neo again, those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the, here's our word again. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those in the flesh cannot please God. Paul goes on to say, you're not in the flesh but you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. What, what, is, what is Paul saying? Well, he's pointing out that, look, there's, there's a contrast between Christians and non-Christians. Those who are non-believers, those who do not have the Spirit of God, are still in the flesh, and therefore their mindset is on the things that are natural, on the things that are worldly, on the things that are fleshly. They just pursue that in common as a unified whole because that's where their heart is at. That's where their mind is fixed. That's their posture. But in contrast to that, there are those who have been saved, those who are in Christ, those who have the Spirit of God indwelling them. And he says they have a mindset as well. And that mindset is on the things of the Spirit, and therefore there is a unified pursuit of all those things that God has given to us in himself and in his word. And again, he's not talking about an unrealistic uniformity of thought and everything, but, but we're heading, if I could put it this way, Paul is saying, look, one of the things that is evidenced in a unified church is they're all heading in the same direction. They have common aspirations. They've got common affections. Again, Colin Brown writes this, man is always aiming at something. You are, aren't you? You are. Man is always aiming at something. And what this passage makes abundantly clear is that the way one thinks is intimately related to the way one lives. A man's thinking and striving cannot be seen in isolation from the overall direction of his life. And that's what's true individually is, is true in the church. Beloved, we're to have the same goals. We're to have the same pursuits. We're to share common affections. We are to be heading in the same direction. That is what Paul's thrust really is to the Philippians. 
we're, we're heading to Alaska, are we not? And one of the, you know that the Iditarod is run up there in the, in the spring. And you've got a bunch of dogs. And they're all in the traces together. And what have they been trained to do? To pull like mad and to pull in the same direction under the leadership, the direction, or the head of the musher. I'm not calling you dogs. I'm just making a comparison. You understand that? Can you imagine if you had eight dogs heading in eight different directions? What a disaster. The sled wouldn't even move. I'm certain that there are dogs that prefer salmon. Some prefer moose. Others prefer alpo. But they, when they get in those traces, when they're together, they are pulling, and they are pulling in the same direction. You see, we have our mind set on the things of the Spirit. We have revealed to us in this book the mind of Christ, and we have come around it as one. We, we are seeking, aren't we, the things above and not the things on the earth. Our singular aim, like the Apostle Paul, our brother, is what? To be pleasing to Christ in all things. When everyone is thinking according to the word of God, when everyone is determined to walk according to the will of God, when everyone is devoted to pleasing God, when everyone is more concerned about others than themselves, listen, it's nearly impossible to have conflict in the church. It's like marriage. You look at the depiction in Ephesians 5 and what do you see? You see a woman who is given under the authority of Christ to come under the authority of her husband and to submit to him and serve him and help him in the same way that she serves the Lord. And on the other side of the equation, you have a man who under the headship of Christ is seeking then, not his own interest, but to lay his life down for the good of this wife who is precious to him. So you've got a slave who's bent on serving her husband and her husband as a slave of Christ seeking to render himself a servant and a slave unto his wife and that's just a joyful marriage it's not in asserting self but in denying self it's not in seeking your own but in seeking the other and when you have two people doing that it's peaceful. It's joyful. There's unity. And it, it defies this world who can't even figure out what marriage is about, let alone live in it well, because they don't have the tools. But we've been given the tools. You see, we are not a group of people gathered to seek our own, are we? Our interests, our desires, our benefits, our rights. We don't come here parasitically as takers. We gather together instead as redeemed sinners seeking the glory of Christ and to love others as he has loved us. You see, that's the aim. It's this inward attitude of the mind and a mutual commitment of the will that that would be fully realized in us 
that there would be a deep loyalty to Christ and to one another and to the church at large. We are all on the same train, all heading down the same track, all headed for the same destination. Now, Paul goes on to give three qualifiers that basically flow out of that concept. He says we have the same mind. There's a second thing that we share as a unified church. He says we maintain the same love. We're back in Philippians. I told you last week and we developed it, so I won't develop it much this week, but love is that beautiful birthmark that every, everyone who's been reborn of the Lord Jesus Christ shares. We have been God-taught to love one another, says 1 Thessalonians. We are devoted to one another, Paul says in chapter 12 of Romans and verse 10. There is a mutuality and a fervency and an undeniably palpable sense of love in our midst. Nothing makes me more excited, honestly, than when visitors come here and they go, what a loving church. My heart just bounces out of my chest. Because that is what people should see. And other-centeredness about us. Not, we're not, again, we're not talking Victorian notions of romantic love. We're talking about nitty-gritty cross-love, the kind of love that is so interested in the well-being of another that I'm not really thinking about me at all. And so when visitors come, we attack them politely. But we do because we're just, we just love them. We're so glad they're here. We're so longing to know them, to see if they know the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe to invite them for lunch. I don't know. Jesus said, as I have loved you, you should love one another. Did you hear the moral imperative in that? I've done it to you. You should do it to one another. We saw last week that John does the same thing. He brings out this moral imperative. Listen for it. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John 4.10-11 In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, <laughs> again, John's not just blowing smoke. You've been loved by Christ, beloved. Therefore, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's shocking, really, that enmities and strife and jealousy and all the division that goes on within the church what, what, what a sorrowful thing when that kind of thing exists. We don't ever want that in our midst, do we? We don't ever want that in our midst. But it takes all of us engaged. It takes all of us committed. It takes all of us focused on this very thing. Same mind and a mutual love. Thirdly, he says, united in spirit. This is another mark of a unified church. They have, he's not talking here about the indwelling spirit, though it is certainly a fruit of that. The word literally means one-souled. You are joint-souled. You are 
soulmates. I hate using that term, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's, it's vernacular, and maybe you'll hang on to it. But we are like links in a chain, unbreakably knit to one another at the deepest level. One writer says this, quote, speaking of a, this verse is speaking of a common affection, a common desire, passion, a sentiment for living together in harmony. We're focused on it. There are similar driving passions and similar ambitions and similar heart inclinations. And in that sense, we are we are knit together and our hearts absolutely beat as one. What are your passions? Is it the glory of Christ? Mine too. How thrilled are you to have the word of God in your hands and at your disposal and in your minds and in your hearts? Are you thrilled about having the word of God? Do you rejoice weekly in it? Me too. Do you delight to gather together to cast our cares on him who, who judges righteously and who cares for us so deeply and so intimately that he answers the prayers of his people according to his will? Are you rejoicing that people are praying for you in the midst of this? Me too. Are you hungry that others would know Christ and you seek then to speak of the Lord Jesus Interesting. Me too. And again, go back to your history books and you'll see those very things have been driving God's people from the beginning of time. An ambition to know Christ, a passion to honor Christ, a love for the truth of Scripture, a longing to obey Jesus, and a common pursuit of the things above. Oh, we've got, we've got one aim one purpose, he says, finally, fourthly, one purpose. We are intent on one purpose. And this brings us back to that word phreneo again. What is it that he is after? What is this one purpose? Well, people suggest a, a number of different things. Some say, and they wouldn't be wrong, that what Paul means here by saying that we as a church should be intent on one purpose is that we should all be intent on the glory of God. Well, there's no question that that is Absolutely correct. We should be about the glory of God first and foremost. Others say that what he's aiming for here is really the exaltation of Christ through the preaching of the gospel and the expansion of his kingdom. And a certain argument can be made from that. You know what the, the first part of chapter one was all about, right? That Paul was rejoicing that the gospel was going forward and the Philippians were involved in it. Maybe that's what he's getting at. Some think that Maybe Paul has in mind here simply the oneness that we've been talking about so far in this message. All of those are subjective stabs, I think, at, at what he's getting at. I'm persuaded that this one purpose that he's aiming at is really anticipating verse 3. What does he really want us to be focused on? Well, we find it in verse 3. This is really what's in Paul's crosshairs. We've seen the incentives to unity, the expressions of unity, and now, finally and thirdly, to the means of Christian unity. Read with me, beginning in verse 3. Be intent on one purpose. Okay, Paul, what's that purpose? Just this. Do nothing. Nothing. 
from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I'm gonna save verses five and following for the, the weeks ahead. But this is the means to Christian unity. This isn't in any way a separate or unrelated thought. Paul didn't just move on to something new now. He's tying this in and he says, look, humility of life, humility of heart, humility of mind is the very means through which this kind of unity is accomplished. You've got to be thinking about it as a congregation and you've got to have humility in your midst if you're to ever see it realized. You see, it's motivated by reflecting on Christ's mercies. It's expressed through a oneness of mind and heart and soul, and it is realized in the demonstration of a Christ-like humility. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And again, these words more or less preach themselves. There's nothing complex here, but what, what I do want you to see is that he's come back to the issue of motive again. Do you see it? He's not simply saying, don't be selfish. He's talking about motivations. Note the word from there. What's, what's that for? What's he saying? He says, do nothing from this vantage point, this posture, this mindset, this disposition of heart. Don't let this thing drive your actions. What thing? Well, some in the Philippian church were given to selfishness. He says that, do nothing from selfishness. It's an interesting word. Originally, it meant a word, it meant to work, get this, to work merely for money. You know people like that? Perhaps you've taken a job like that and you found out 30 years later, this wasn't as fulfilling as I had hoped. It's a word that means to work merely for money, like a mercenary might. That's ugly work, by the way a mercenary's job. Why would you do it? Well, because the pay is good, right? I'm not saying you would do it, but some people do. It's work without value, except that it brings me selfish, personal gain. It, it came eventually to have the idea of, of being in something for yourself. I'm in it for me. That's what Paul's saying here. Do nothing from that motivation, James uses this word a couple of times in chapter three when he writes this. If you have bitter jealousy and, here's our word, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant. Do you see how that's the opposite of humility? People who think like this are bent on themselves. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, and demonic. Brothers and sisters, anytime you're tempted to sort of indulge a little selfishness, you just think about those words, earthly, natural, and demonic. And James says it didn't come from above, that mentality. It came from somewhere else. And then James makes 
an obvious statement, but one that needs to be made. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder in every evil thing. You want to see a disunified church? Look for a church in where everybody is seeking after their own. He says, not only is there to be no selfishness, but some of the Philippians were given over undoubtedly to empty conceit. And this word refers to vanity, an an unwarranted sense of self. I never read those words in any of those self-esteem books that came out in the 80s and the 90s. There was never was the phrase unwarranted sense of self in any sentence ever. But it's all over the Bible. One lexicon put it this way, quote, it's a state of pride that is without basis or justification. This guy's a poser. He thinks he's something when he's nothing and he's utterly deceived. It's a person who is lofty in their own estimation, whose whose opinions matter most, whose perspectives are always better, whose service is, is far more sacrificial, at least in his own eyes. This is a church that is not so much about the Lord's glory as about individual self-identity, self-exaltation. The person who lives this way in the church uses the congregation of God's people in the way that a rock star uses the crowd. It's about being noticed. It's about being respected. It's about being appreciated. It's about, if I could, could put it this way, and I don't think it's too much to say, it is about nothing less than being worshipped. That's what the word worship means. It is to ascribe worth. Beloved, when you function on a selfish basis like this, It is ascribing worth to yourself in a way that God never intended. And it's hard because it's so common in the air we breathe and around us everywhere. Self, 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 me, I, my. It's just, it's everywhere. Why did the Pharisees appear so righteous, why did the Pharisees do everything they did according to Jesus? Yep. Jesus said they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. And he says they've received their reward in full. There's a whole bunch of men who think they're something, but they've gained no ground with God. We read in 3 John about a man by the name of Diotrephes. You know him? It's okay to know his name, but don't be like him. The text of scripture tells us that he liked to boss people around in the church. He liked to prohibit missionaries from visiting. He wasn't too much about sharing the church's wealth. He, he was a guy, the text says, who loved the preeminence. He loved to be thought of first and most. Paul says, do nothing from that mindset. And I want to pull over here just momentarily and just think for a minute, what, what, 
you know, you, you take these two words together and, and, and what do you have? You, you have someone or a group of people who, who think about themselves, emphasize themselves, prioritize themselves first and foremost. This kind of person is someone who attends ministries when it's convenient. And when there's something in it for them, that's, that's sort of the mindset as they walk out. They're either thrilled or they're disappointed, not because God was glorified, not because they could serve their brothers in Christ. It was a good day or a bad day at church because I either got something for myself or I didn't. These are people that are characterized by lack of commitment. They often start things but fail to finish. There's always seems to be a rather narrow perimeter around their service in the church. They're willing to do those things that are either easy or, and don't require much or perhaps have some amount of, of publicity to them. But, but the menial task that's done, you know, you give them a key so that they can be here on a Saturday and do some things when nobody sees and that just doesn't appeal much. They speak often of themselves their life, their struggles, their ministries, the people they know. They elevate themselves by tearing others down. They're critical of leadership. They're critical of other people in the church. People like this are often given to sins of the tongue, aren't they? In gossip and slander and criticism. They stir up strife and contention. One thing as I thought about this, uh, I, it's really easy for people like this who are fixed on themselves to, to be wounded. They're hurt all the time. They just always seem to be in a bit of an emotional slump because they were overlooked or somebody said something or somebody else was noticed for their service. But, 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 but it's all being interpreted in terms of, of how they're being viewed and whether they're being appreciated or whether they're being overlooked. They also tend to be irreconcilable because they, they can't forgive easily because it's not about Christ and it's really not about the people who've offended them. The issue is them and they've been crossed and that's all that really matters because the church, you see, exists for me. I just have one question, beloved, one question And it should expose the foolishness of all of that. Let me just ask you, was Jesus that way? Clamoring for notoriety, unwilling to do the hard thing, unwilling to be hurt, always carrying himself around in a sense of self-pity because, you know, the world wasn't treating him. Do you see the folly of all of that? We're to be like Christ. We're to have a different posture altogether. Well, we need to wrap up, and we're going to do it quickly. Notice Paul sets in contrast. He says, don't be that way. Don't be selfish. Don't be conceited. But, and that is the starkest word Paul could have used to contrast these two things. Instead of that, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Humility of mind is that modesty of heart. It is a lowliness of mind that's manifested in, in 
sacrificial, other-centered service. Again, just think to Jesus. And that's, you know, even as I was reading, you wanted me to go on to verse 5, didn't you? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's just being like Christ was toward you. I had the ushers this morning pass out to you, those who are greeting out there, a, a list of the one another commands. It's not the first or the 15th time I passed it out, but we have new people and we have visitors. And for those of you who lost your last 10 copies, here you have another. Put them on your fridge, put it in your Bible, pray for it, look at them often. But this is what we're being called to. With lowliness of mind, that we would love one another as Christ has loved us, that we would be devoted to one another in brotherly love, that we would love not, not hypocritically and from a stony heart, but instead fervently and from the heart, that there'd be no divisions and that we'd have the same care for one another, that we'd show forbearance to one another in love, that we'd accept one another as Christ has accepted us, that we'd be clothed with humility toward one another. We'd give preference to one another. We'd be subject to one another. We'd regard one another as greater than ourselves. We'd live in peace with one another and wash each other, other's feet. We'd be of the same mind and build up and speak the truth one with the other, admonish one another, encourage one another, comfort, confess our sins to one another, pray for one another, serve one another, care for one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, be hospitable to one another. You look down the list and you go, man, all of this stuff comes into play when things are challenging in the church. And that's exactly right. Love, which is what this is, this is another expression of love. It is biblical love in action. And it is the perfect bond of what? Unity. When churches live like this, when Christians live like this, Christ's prayer is answered and he is glorified. Paul says in verse four, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This word look out is interesting. It's the word we get scope from. This is what you're scoping out when you're at church. This is what you're looking at. This is what you're concentrating on. This is your focal point. This is your interpersonal GPS. These are the coordinates. What are the coordinates? It's, punch this into your GPS. O-T-H-E-R-S. Others. That's what we are headed towards. That's what we're mutually committed to. That is who we're serving and so concerned for others' good, what edifies them. That's why Paul says, don't just look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. That's right in line with Romans 15.3. For even Christ, in other words, Paul's saying, imagine it, even Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords. For even Christ did not please himself, 
But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That is to say that Christ bore our sins, not out of self-interest, but from a mindset, a humble mindset of obeying and honoring his father and providing for us, securing for us a salvation that we did not deserve. Beloved, he's the one we're called to emulate. He's the one we're called to follow. That's the point. Others are more important than myself and I'm gonna make a point of pursuing their interests. Can I put it this way? A very conscientious, focused point of pursuing the interests of others. Sometimes when we would show up as a family at a gathering here or there and I, I would say to my family before the doors opened, I want everybody to remember when we get out of this car we are not here to be served. We're not here to be loved. We're not here to be uh, sought out. We're not here to talk about us. We come into this as servants. We come into this to do dishes, not to have dishes done for us. We go in to seek out the well being of others, not to be sought out ourselves. Okay, Dad. You should, before you get out of the church parking lot and before you get out of your car in the church parking lot, have that discussion. You should be that conscious of it. This is what the Lord wants from me. We're entering here to edify others. We're entering here to build up others. We're entering in here to strengthen others, to take interest in them, to love them. The text assumes, by the way, that you will give enough attention to your own personal interests, right? Don't merely look out for that. He, he doesn't have to tell you to look for that. It's like Jesus when he said, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, he, he knows you love yourself. He just used that as the, as the, as the bar. That's the, that's the comparison line. I know you have high esteem for yourself, so love others the way you love yourself. Beloved, a mature church is a gathering of Christ's people characterized by Christ's humility and conformed to Christ's mindset of sacrificial service. How happy is the church, really? How happy? How glad, how joyful is the church where that kind of mentality prevails? Well, I'll tell you this, I rejoice to be part of such, of a, such a church. I've known that kind of thing here. I know you have too. And I want us to just excel still more. And my prayer is that the Lord would anchor these things in our collective mind. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, that is my prayer, our prayer this morning, that again, you would give us wisdom and understanding of all that you've accomplished for us in the gospel. Lord, that we would grow increasingly and even more abundantly into your likeness in every way, that we would think like you, that we would act like you. Lord, that we would serve others as you have served us. Lord, that we would value the peace and the unity that you have purchased for your people with your blood, that we would share with you that deep, abiding love for your bride, the church.
that we would treasure our relationships here, that we would handle them with utmost care. Lord, that we would never take the, the warmth of the love that we have known here and our unity here in Christ for granted, but that we would guard it, that we would treasure it, that we would cherish it, that we would grow in it. Lord, we know that this is your will, and so we ask that you would, by your power, work mightily within us as we seek to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In all these things, Lord, may we attain to increasing likeness of Christ. You are our God. You are our Savior. You are our King. Lord, all glory, all glory belongs to you. In Jesus' name, amen.